another episode of Talking Force. Today we have a very special guest and I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I do. Um, Coach Ken is joining us. He has had a lot of different roles throughout his career and today we're going to talk about his current journey and path and where he got to today, um, but also some words of wisdom that we can pass down to future generations because Coach was not only a lead practitioner at uh, the college level, he also had great success at the NFL level. And now kind of moving forward in his his new path on the education side of things, we're going to touch on some key points that I think everyone can benefit from. So without further ado, Coach, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, no, I appreciate it, man. It's a long time coming. We talked about this, I think, over a year ago, and we made sure we locked in that date real quick this year. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you so much. So I just, again, could you please just give us a high level um, kind of overview of how you got to where you're at today? If someone had their uh, head in the sand for the last 20 plus years uh, and don't know kind of your story, uh, I think they'd be I think they'd be interested to hear the path that you, you took. Yeah, real real quick or quick as quick as I can get through 30 plus years. I, I was the. I would say uh, the quote, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. That that was me. I would call myself athletically or to say I was an athlete in high school, I would say that's a limited, that would be a falsity. I, I was a football athlete and was, and did that at a pretty high level. I was, I wrestled in high school, but back then there was an article that I studied when I was first coming up that was in the original journal of strength and conditioning when it was very practical when the NSCA, that journal was extremely practical. It was people writing about their programming, very little references needed to be done. It was anecdotal, which I'm okay with because most strength coaches don't have the time to put their research into pen and paper and do it uh, specifically based off of the requirements to get published but they talked about multi-sport athletes. And one of the things that really resonated with me was, you know, the types of multi-sport athletes they are. And if you're a very exceptional athlete, you're going to be what they call the type AAA, where you are excellent in every sport that you, that you participated in. I was what was considered, and I, I, I hope I say this right, because it just resonated with me back when I learned it. I would be what was considered a type AB multi-sport athlete. I was a two-sport athlete, but the second sport, wrestling, was more being performed to enhance my my sport A, my football. Uh, balance, tougher, an individual sport, so you had to really have some fortitude and some resiliency and some and 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 learn about you know competing against one other person in the limelight. Football, you know. Uh, yeah, everyone has a role, but if you make a minute mistake, there's a good chance the rest of the team could cover up and the play could still be success. You make a mistake in an individual sport, that's shown for everybody. So that was used more because I was told by college football scouts that recruited me, hey, I think you should wrestle. It'll help your footwork, your strength, your balance, et cetera. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll go wrestle. And and I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself like a super tough fight you guys so that was you know getting aggressive and stuff like that was something else I needed from the emotional standpoint and, and how to be you know a little bit more angry I guess when you're getting your butt beat every day in practice by three guys who were state qualifiers and they were all with the weight classes below you so yeah I learned a little bit about that but but I was thrown into the weight room 
uh, or introduced to the weight room early in my in my childhood career. I lifted in in my basement with uh, Dom and Michael DiNapoli brothers, and then really got into it going into my ninth grade year at home. But then in my high school, we, we were 10, 11, 12 back then. So the ninth grade team played at the junior high, and then 10, 11, 12 was at the high school. My goal was to be on the varsity as a 10th grader. That was very hard to do at that time. So my dad, one of his three jobs was he drove the school bus. So he would pick up me and several of my buddies from the junior high and drive us over to the high school so we could lift weights. And that's kind of where I got my first formal interaction of being in a weight room. And I was with uh, Rich Mahler was our high school coach. We were way ahead of our time in high school weightlifting in the early to mid eighties. I mean, we, you didn't lift, you didn't play varsity. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't really year round. It was, it was as soon as the season was over to the, as soon as the season was start, and then during football season back then, in season really wasn't you, – if you were doing it, you were doing it on your own. And the, But the process was in my head because without, without that, without strength training, I don't get a Division I scholarship. And if I don't get a scholarship, no one knows who I am because I'm working sanitation with my dad in my hometown and maybe never leave. So the weight room gave me a career. Like who would have thought that, you know uh, – you. When I look at some of the things that uh, a former intern of mine, who's now a four-time world's strongest man, and I see what Brian Shaw has done with the career in strongman, you know, what he has accomplished, that, that's something, you know, people will tell you that no one could ever fathom that a, that a guy could make a career, like a legitimate career as a professional strongman. And for me, coming up early in the in the game, as far as what strength coaches were, I didn't go to college thinking I was going to be a strength coach like my son did 20-something years later. I went to college thinking like everybody else. Oh, I'll get a degree. Uh, maybe, you know, I, I didn't even know if I was going to coach. I went to Wake, and I was like, oh, I'll get an economics degree. I didn't even know why. But I just – and then then I realized, wait, man, I can do this? So I got, I got initiated fairly quick into being a coach. I mean, I was a sophomore in college. I already joined the NSCA. That was highly recommended. I'd spent a numerous time in the weight room with my strength coach because I'd been injured for two years. So I hadn't seen hardly any time on the playing field, but I lived in the weight room and it just kind of, it grew, 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 grew. And that's how most people fell into being a strength coach in the eighties. You were a former athlete who wasn't good enough to play the pros and wanted to get into coaching and like lifting weights. I mean, Boyd Epley was a javelin thrower. Uh, uh, Buddy Morris was a pole vaulter, I believe, at Pitt. And those guys fell into jobs with football coaches because they liked training. And and they and the coaches valued them, and the players respected them. I mean, so for me, without without strength training, without being in a weight room, I don't know where where I would be at this point in my life. So. I owe a lot to the iron. I owe, I owe a lot to walking in the gyms around the world. So uh, I got out of college, get a degree in health and sports science from Wake Forest. I spend two years in high school in Fort Lauderdale, go back to Wake, and then I make my journey uh, as a college strength coach where two years of GA at Boise State led to an assistance position, led to five years as the head strength coach. 
moved on to Utah for two seasons. Then I went to Arizona State, and Arizona State was the, to me, for the lack of a better term, that was the big time for me. That was where all my goals and everything that I had aspired to accomplish, that university afforded me that opportunity because it, it gave me my first real budget. It gave me my second real staff. It gave me the opportunity to be in a name-recognized institution, which back in the early 2000s, it was all about logos. Like, you you got instant credibility when your logo changed. Like, I was the same. Now, obviously, you grow, but my my formulation of methodology and principles was highly developed by the athletes and the coaches at Boise State. By the time I got to Arizona State, it was continuing being refined, but the similar principles – were the same so but the how how boise state logo back then when we were still one double a just going to one double a and then changing to arizona state makes you a better strength coach was kind of funny and laughable to be honest with you but we we accomplished a tremendous amount of great things across the board in seven years at arizona state uh things changed we made a move to louisville two years later uh, we didn't get it done on the football field uh you know a lot of strength coaches that are in that football only or, or, or what I call sports specific strength coach mode, got to understand, Hey man, you're part of the problem. If you lose, like I'm tired of hearing, well, I did my job. Hey, you sign up for a sport and you're going to be a one trick pony. Then you sign up for getting fired just like everybody else, because I, I'm tired of us not taking responsibility. I don't know what that responsibility is. I know for me, what my, where, when I self, evaluated my two years at Louisville. I know the mistakes I made, uh, I, where, where those are. And if, if those are, and that's, and that's no issues. I have no issues talking about it. I didn't do a good enough job communicating with the head coach, what I saw in the weight room. Some of the best training I ever had in my career was the two years at Louisville. But if I'm going to say, I'm going to be a leader and I'm going to, and I'm the connection between the coach and the athletes there were certain things that I think I should have done a better job communicating to the head coach. So I, I know where, where the, some of the blame, where I'll put some of the blame on me, whether other people want to agree or not, that's not, that's not my concern. I know where I'll put the blame and I, and I'll, and I have no issues of saying that. I understand what my role is just like, you know, people ask me about training Brian Shaw. Uh, Brian was a 40 year old athlete who came in fourth at world's strongest man. A lot of people would feel like that was a win. Brian wanted to win his fifth title. He brought me on to help him win his fifth title. We didn't get up. We didn't do that. I failed him because as his coach, did I ask the right questions? Did I write the right plans? Was I, was I monitoring what I needed to monitor? And I continue to learn even now, I continue to rehash that whole training process. But in the end, I'm not going to make the athlete say he failed. That's my role. I got to take that burden. And I want to just ask real quick, because that humility there, I think, can often get overlooked, especially with the way that money is now. And as you mentioned, I'm, I'm laughing as you say about that. Well, I did my part. Well, your part is to be part of a team to win. And I think right. often it's the, oh, I got them fast. I got them strong. No, no, no. Like go back to the origins of strength and conditioning. When Boyd was doing that, it was to rehab the guys, to get them back to Osborne so they could play. They're not competing, you know, in conditioning. They're not, they're, these are elements that would aid and augment on-field production. But I'd ask you, how do you find that line? Yes, everybody has things to work on. Yes, there's things they could have done better. But for when someone's objectively looking at a situation like that, because it is unique, 
that we've always been parallel track to the sport coach or parallel track in your case to football. How do you go about developing a critical lens that is both authentic and true uh, that, yeah, there are things you can do better. And if you think you can't, that's the problem. You, you don't have a lens. And then on the flip side, yeah, there are some things from recruiting. There are some things on coaching and yeah. integration. What's a good way to go about building a lens to kind of do that uh, process? Well, I think a couple of things. I was a little bit older in my career, and I think we all go through that arrogance and selfish phase and ego phase. And if you read the book Halftime, it talks about the first half of your career, you're chasing success, and the second half of your career is chasing significance. And by the time I was at Louisville, I had definitely crossed the halftime. And a lot of it was just growing up, right? Like, hey, man, I'm not going to MNF players unless I have to. And I and I did. And, I, and the greatest thing about the NFL was you don't do that. And it really awoke me. Like, if I ever went back to college, I can coach you hard without being an a-hole. And, and different – and again – was I doing anything wrong or right? That's the debatable, but it's just the way the 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 uh, position has grown, right? Like when I came up, you were the bad cop. Your job was discipline, run them to the dirt, call them this, call them that. It was you know break them down, build them up, and that's not necessarily the case anymore. Uh, and definitely, I don't. And again, you have to look at big pictures. Like uh, somebody made an interesting post today. I think it was uh, the the kid at I call I call everyone kid. Please don't take that from a disrespect. Uh, it's a young coach from Florida Atlantic talking about and I and I kind of and I kind of saw where he was going. Where we've got all these people reading all these different books outside, you know, trying to be well rounded. But like he said, there's enough books out there for for you to not, not be able to stay on top of what's going on in strength and conditioning to stick to that. And then somebody said, and you need to be on the platform too. And I think that from a, from a growth mindset, you've got to be aware of how communication has changed and how society's changed. Like I'm tired of hearing kids in this era are soft. They're not soft. They're what society has made them. They it, don't blame the kid for being something you don't want them to be, look at how society's changed. There's no free play. Every kid is babysitted by organized youth sports at four and five years old. Everybody's training to be the next Venus Williams, Serena Williams, Tiger Woods, have no general application of what it takes to be uh, just a free-moving athlete with free play. And there's no leadership because, again, parents in this era – are, are so safe oriented. And I'm not saying, hey, I got grandkids too. I don't want them running the street like I do. This era is different. There's a big concern. And so kids are just more robotic in what they do. And very few of them are being turned loose into this multi-sport, try to be an overall athlete. And the ones who are excelling and the ones that are getting, you know, specialized at younger sports are getting crushed. So I think you got to be aware of how everything is going on around you to build this new persona of yourself and to have the, the understanding that if you're not growing and you're not understanding why society has led to these types of changes in the athletes you're coaching, you can't just say, well, I've always done it this way. Those days are over. These kids are smart. They got YouTubes. 
and they got social media too. It's easy for them to Google and check you. Like you can't make stuff up anymore. You can't say, cause I said so. Cause them and their parents are Googling, you know, medec.com and getting real stuff and coming back and saying, Hey man, strength coach doesn't know what he's talking about. We got to bounce it. And would you go even further to say too, I know one of the observations I've seen, it seems younger and younger individuals. What's my stats? What's my, what's my ranking? What's my profile? Did I get any likes? They're not very grounded in the process and the effort. And I know specifically, you know, at a high performing school like Yale or, you know, any of the power fives, that journey to get there, there was a lot of things that they had to do and things they had to pass. But I do wonder if that doesn't play into their physiology and to the way that they move where everything is a guarded kind of can I do it or not and just the idea of just to go and fail and even teaching that in the weight room if you crash on a rack that that's not a failure if you gave a maximal effort we teach you how to bail out your spotters get you but giving maximal intent I feel like that's really really been really attacked and even in basketball as well the AAU oh I got to get a scholarship I got to get a scholarship versus where it was I was going to play with maximum effort without fear of outcome have you seen that change as well, and even at the higher levels? Yeah, I think because everybody, everybody's chasing this, this what I would call, I don't want to call it a false gene, but when you look at the percentages of playing professional, playing professional sports, it's so minute. And I'm not telling you to chase. Uh, a coach told me early on in my recruiting process, they go, uh, when I was getting recruited, what's your goal? My goal is to play in the NFL. He goes, well, I'm glad you said that. It's going to be hard to do, but if you don't have that mindset, then you're probably wasting – you shouldn't be participating in sports. So I understand the chase, but the like you said, the way people are putting their plans together are different. It's how can I get there with the least amount of work and pressure? And a lot of that comes from the entourages. And that's what's, and that's what I think, again, you got parents dictating too much to the kid. Sometimes the kid responds. Most of the kids are quitting before they even get to high school because they can't understand. They're not playing for the love of the game. They're playing as it's a job too early. There's a time when it's a job. It's a job when you start getting recruited. Up until that point, like I said, nothing matters until puberty. These people who are chasing these dreams in adolescence, and, and again, why why are they chasing these dreams? Because you got these organizations rating, hey, the best eighth grade basketball player, right? Well, guess what? By the time he's nine, ninth, 10 people might have grown 10 inches. You know, I, I've seen, you see it all the time. I've played Pop Warner football. How many of those kids who are running backs that were running around making 80-yard touchdowns at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, by the time they got to college, I mean, excuse me, high school, they're on the bench because they peaked too early. Or the or the heavy kid who couldn't make weight and had an X on his helmet and had to, you know, strip down every day in front of his friends, which was embarrassing when you're in that age bracket to make weight and couldn't touch the ball, is now the starting tailback for the best college in the country. So we've got to kind of slow down. And again, it's on the it's on it's on individuals like us to like check parents. And I, hey, man, I got caught up with the whole get my kid a scholarship deal. I've got my own testimonies to, and my and my ways to uh, talk about coaching your own kid and being very, very aware of your kids are going to have a lot of coaches. They're only going to have one dad. 
and you cross the line and they call you on it, that's hard to, it's hard to forget. Let's put it that way. And those are things that you got to remember. Like I see some of these guys like, oh, I'm not coaching my kid. Yes, you are. You're coaching the hell out of him. And I hope he wants it. But again, at some point in time, you got you got to be aware of, man, they're going to have plenty of coaches. You got to be dad. And I hope guys who are doing that understand how to separate that. I didn't do a very good job of separating that with my oldest son. And it came back to bite me. So it all it's all about... The hardest thing in life to me is self-criticism, right? Can you really look in the mirror and then say what you did wrong and then be confident enough of how you're growing to get on a show like yourself, like you enter, you uh, you allow me to come on and say it out loud. That's the key to being aware. Like to me, the the key isn't finding your faults. It's are you willing to share those faults out loud so that people realize that, hey, man, it's okay, like you said, to make these mistakes. But again, if you continue to make, like I have things that I continue to make mistakes. So I, when it's that, it's a habit. So I've got some bad habits. <laughs> uh, and that's where you got to learn. Like I continue to say I want to make changes, but I continue to fall back into this trap because it's now become habit. It comes part of who you are. And those are those are hard to break. It's like addictions. Addictions are hard to break. So I think as we go back into looking at, you know, how do you funnel this is, can you look in the mirror and make the decisions that you need to make that you understand that this is your part? This is what's important. And again, as strength coaches, we all, in the simplest form, we always want our guys to be, we always want our athletes, women, men, to be bigger, faster, stronger. But in what realm does that bigger, faster, stronger fit? It, it's not powerlifting bigger, faster, stronger. It's not weightlifting bigger, faster, stronger. It's we have to remember, and this this is something I resonated early on in my career when I worked with a guy in college, and then I got to coach him in pros, who's going to be a Hall of Famer. Where you realize those guys aren't here to lift weights; they're here to play a sport. What we do is strength and conditioning for team sport athletes is always going to be no higher than second in their life. And it's probably going to be less than that because some type of faith family or football or faith family and sport, those three things are probably always going to outlie, hey, I got to go lift weights. And then when you're in the NFL or professional, finances is going to come in. And then, oh, you got your charitable your charitable organizations you run all your found so you the older you get the further down lifting weights is and we've got to be aware of that that's why when you construct things and you're looking at different things like you said something earlier about exercising not the exercise it's what you're putting into the plan that is efficient enough for them to succeed in their sport and if that means that an athlete starts out being a back squatter and by the time you're done coaching him he's predominantly doing single leg work that's the evolution of the position he's in and or or she's in or you know the different you know the battles between do you back squat or front squat do you do both or do you neither you know those are fun debates to have with coaches but in the end is if you can justify your plan to the athlete and the athlete believes in that plan and they're not questioning why they're doing something because you've done a good job of explaining the means and the necessary 
factors why you think this is important to them and how as you evolve in my program, which is hard now with NIL and, and unlimited transfers, the developmental process is is more free agency than it is, hey, I, you know, when I was in college, I knew I'd have you, but early on, I knew you, I'd have you four or five years. Then I started coaching some really good people and some of the football players would be gone in three. But still, I had time to develop. Now it's like they come in year one and you're trying to do, say, a block zero developmental plan to get them. And then all of a sudden, oh, I don't like it here. I'm out. So it's really changing to free agency. I still think you got to stick to who you are because who you are is where you're going to be most authentic. If you start trying to grasp at straws, people can see through that. And then they know that, hey, man, this guy's all over the place. I mean, I, as you know, Thomas, how many times have we seen coaches who are still searching allegedly for this holy grail? And, okay, this eight weeks, I'm going to do West Side. Right. This eight weeks, I'm going to do 5-3-1. This eight weeks, I'm going to go tier system. This this four weeks, I'm going to do some uh, a Mike Boyle template. And then they want to know why the kids aren't getting better or they're getting hurt and the coach wants them out. It's because they haven't committed to a long-term or a structured plan where you can see actual results. Right. So, so in a, in a long, tangible, off-the-wall uh, answer, it's can you look in the mirror and understand what the ultimate goal is for your role and how do you process that and then approach the athlete and the coaching staff and let them understand where your value fits? Right. And I think that that's that same lens and humility of being able to look in I think it's deeply rooted and I think about the best coaches that I've ever had. You're here to serve and that service mentality, I think the athletes now more than ever really can see into that. And I think a more than ever, there's a premium on emotional intelligence, your ability to be able to connect with a wide range of individuals for the individuals that you work with to say, wow, coach cares about me. Now let's talk about methodologies to your point. They can look online, they can see with this latest training thing. So yes, you have a little bit of information overload, but on the flip side, there's a lot more tools, even in the last five years, 10 years, to be able to objectively show. Like, I'll never forget when we went and we, we had access to the DEXA scanners and we had kids gain five, 10 pounds. And they said, well, I'm heavier. I'm going to be slower. But then the jumps go up. The yeah. speeds get back. They're more resilient. And so to the savvy practitioner, and I think right now we're unfortunately at this time where it's old school or new school. But in reality, yeah. the best staffs are high emotional intelligence, people that have you know credentials, competence, and commitment. Those three things, if you don't have it, you're not gonna be good. But understanding, I know how to program, and, and I'm humble enough that if it's not going right, I can make an adjustment, but you have to have an ethos. And that comes through your mentorship, that comes through observations. We, we said all the time, 500 to 800 hours of internship floor time, just to make it so you don't kill anybody, to make you serviceably useful. And then it's gonna take you 10 years to get decent, and then you'll have another 10 years to be good. And then you'll have your final 10 to fi figure out what you need to optimize. Yeah, hopefully you're not, it's hopefully you're still in the profession by then. Right. And being, <laughs> open, and being open to it. And so, and I'd love to hear your thoughts too, because again, working at the pro level, working at the college level, talk about some of those integrations that went well, some of those integrations um, that went poorly. Again, we, before this um, podcast, we were talking about, there's a role for the savvy coach who just knows that a 10 inch vertical jump for a team average isn't right. That, you know, everybody benches, you know, 500 and everybody squats 600. Like, 
I think if we don't have context, we could take those numbers. And the, the worst thing about data is that they're not accurate. And now you're making decisions on return to play or anything like that, you know, it's borderline unethical. But that's where you have to have checks and balances between call it old school, call it new school. But the, the real new school is this kind of hybrid. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, like you mentioned, at the pro level where they can just not do it. Like they can just your best player may not want to lift, may not want to do your plan or any plan. How do you handle that? And what's some advice you have navigating those waters? Yeah, I would say that the biggest thing is you have to have confidence in yourself first. The other thing that I would tell you that I used to my advantage was as a student of strength, I studied a lot of the different ways programs were written to create my own specific methodology. So for me to inherit somebody who was an HIT athlete, well, I know that style of training. For me to have somebody come in from an Olympic-based only program, I understand where they come from. So I know that that athlete would be more acclimated to what I, the way I train versus a guy who'd been on all machines. Now there's going to be more teaching. So you, you look at, and the same thing with high school, right? Where, where are these, this day and age, high school strength training is way different than when I was in college coaching 20 years ago, where I would tell people on recruiting trips, I don't want you to, I wish you don't, you didn't lift weights in high school. I mean, I just did because that's where block zero came from. Start everybody from scratch. Well, why do you call it block zero? Because they have a training age with zero when they come into my programming. And that's just the way we did it. And then we've been very successful. And that that type of program has spawned off to uh, thousands of high schools across the country. And in a lot of uh, university settings, they're using some type of freshman introductory program that really wasn't the case in the in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s when seniors trained as freshmen and freshmen trained as seniors and you did the same program your entire your entire career and then we wondered why kids numbers stopped improving because as you know they adapted they got stale and there was no variation in adapt and the ways to accumulate new stress so uh, there was a lot of different things going on at that time when i entered the field and so I was, I feel like I've always been someone who looks at the peripheral and I always looked at things from the athlete, being an athlete myself, being what's the head coach's parameters, what's he thinking or she, what's the ad administration thinking or the general manager or owner or, you know, your highest level of person that you report to. And when you do that, you get a really good perspective of understanding that it has nothing to do with you it has 100 to be an athlete centered type of building process and you know you brought up something about being a service i re I, I i believe we are a service industry but donnell boucher when he was at citadel and now he's works for play global or play usa or whatever they're calling it he brought up a, a thing where I'm here to serve, but I'm not a servant. And I think we've got to be aware of that because I think sometimes your, your high-end players sometimes come across and think that you're there to serve them. Like, here, here's my little weight tray and here's your, here's your shake. You know, here's your program. 
And do you think, though, that that relates to the relationship more so of being able to connect with them? Because I, I know what you're alluding to, where it's either other people just go do this, go do that. You're, you're you know, getting bossed around is different than I'm here to serve and to to help you. But finding that line, especially for a young coach, they may not know. Because, again, I'm here to help you, but you can also pick up your own towel. I'm here right. to help you, but you can clean up your rack. And and how, how do you go about knowing that line without being so falling into the ego trap? Yeah, I think, first of all, that all comes back with laying down the rules and regulations when they walk into your facility. Uh, I will tell you this. One of the greatest football players I ever coached was Luke Keekley. From the day he got there to the day he left, he, he always stayed and picked up towels, never was asked. He would always go and get guys water. He would bring waters to rookie free agents. Maybe he didn't even know their name yet, but he would always introduce himself to them. And he, because he was such well-respected, I saw that trickle down to other people in his position group, the Shaq Thompsons of the world, the AJ Kleins of the world, where they were just like, Luke Keekley's going into the hall of fame. If he's doing this, I can do this. And we, we, you build that. It's a, it's a, it's a respect. They respect the fact that, Hey man, you're building you're building a program that that helps them. The least I can do is help them clean up. You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes it's not even you, it's you just doing your job and going out of their way to show that hey man, this guy's this guy's writing a program but he's listening to what I have to say. This is pro. College you're still teaching that athlete how to do that. Like if you got a kid for 5 years You'd like to think years four and five, you could have some really good adult. If you if you program, again, I'm not trying to dog the way people program. The way I programmed, the goal was as guys got older or athletes got older and they were with me long enough, they sh we should have done a good enough job that they should be able to question things going into the older parts of their career. Like, again, why does a, why does a, does a, and again, this is all, I go back to this. Uh, guys should have choices. Athletes should have choices when they've proven they've earned the choice. And so, like, I always went to things like, and then I always want to be the coach that says, okay, what are these kids thinking that they don't want to bring up to me, but I know they want it, so let me Jedi mind trick them and give it to them, and then they'll be like, oh, house is the man, right? So, like, one of them is Olympic lifts with skilled athletes on the football field right? Wide receivers, DBs. Now, if I've had you as a freshman and you've been with me three, four, five years, does that kid really want to still do Olympic lifts when he's a senior or redshirt senior? No. Does he really have to? Probably not if he's progressed the way he does. So instead of fighting guys who are going to be your best players, what are alternatives that you can get your same bang for your buck? Oh, you know what I do? I'm going to do weighted box jumps. And you know what you find out is? Those guys will spend all day jumping on a box. So I win because I'm not fighting them and they're actually doing more work than required. So you find, you find ways to look deeper to what these people reward them before they ask. Maybe that's a good way to say. We tried to really reward intentionality and along the line of, you know, I think some of the best players I had checking all the racks, making sure all the weights were spun the right way, making sure all the pins were put away, not because they asked, but that high level of intentionality. And then also ownership. Yeah, you want bicep choice. 
Yep. You know what? We yeah. got to do a plyo progression. You follow it up. You filled out your workout card. You're a good teammate. You go in and and giving that ownership. And, and ideally, I remember a coach I had growing up saying, you know, you've made it as a coach when you're pulling the reins back, not when you're pushing people. Oh, forward. for sure. And I remember telling guy, oh, man, don't let the captains catch you. Like if they find like that's just not what we do. That's that's our cult. And that's real culture. It, it starts to build momentum and you're augmenting. And each year there's a recommitment to excellence. And every year is a little bit different. There's growth, there's decay. Um, but really getting the, those lean leaders that you've talked about three, four years have a lot of your same core values as a person, you know, as a, as a man, as a woman, but then also applying that into the weight room and their craft and doing everything at a high level the best they can, knowing that some people will go to the NFL, a lot won't. Some people will be all Americans, a lot won't. But the way that we approach our craft and in life, I think that's a lesson that many athletes will take on with them even after their careers are over is having that intentionality, something higher than them and putting their foot forward with, you know, the methodologies that, you know, have been applied in the weight room. Yeah. I think if you do your job and your staff does your, their job and over time, what you'll see is uh, I, I was fortunate. I mean, there was some different thing, but I was fortunate when I was at Arizona state that athletes performance Institute was on our campus. So I made really good relationships with several of the people that worked there. One was Daryl Eto, who I hold in high regard. One of the best coaches I've ever been around. I value his opinion wholeheartedly, more so than a lot of other people that I've been around. And he would always come and do professional development once a meet and watch us train. And towards the end of my time there, he goes, you know, we're coaching, we're motivating, we're talking smack and all that other stuff. But the truth was, the program had been so well received and the, we were winning some games. We didn't win it. We, you know, we were winning games, going to bowl games. We were trying to make our move on USC, which was tough in that early two thousands. That's when they were dominant. But he, he said like, how's this, this program's running like a machine. Like I've got a hundred football players in there. We've got blocks zero, one, two, three, and four. And he's like, it's like, they're on like, it's like they're on a, you know, a walking es uh, escalator. It's just like, it's just going, they're just going through and they're just knocking stuff out and guys are motivating each other. They're, they're helping each other out. They're peer, you know, not peer pressure. They're just, they, they're, they're reaping the rewards of, of what an entire program looks like on and off the field. And I think when you get to that point, again, now you've making more of a significant impact in somebody's not just their training life, but in their life overall, because if they're doing that and you're almost sitting back, what you're doing, like in, in the NFL, you're a manager. Yeah. You're coaching some of the younger kids that need a little help and still, but overall you're really managing people's training, training, training plans. Uh, you may have a template and we, you know, we had guys that were, were template based guys and make a few adjustments. here. Then we had guys that were totally off the script that, but at the end of the day, everybody sees you training. Everybody sees you working hard. And everybody knows that because of the way we're doing things that, hey, if you got an issue, you can come to us and there's not going to be a battle. Like, hey, man, house, I don't want to squat today. All right. Do you want a belt squat? Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm saying, well, that's squat. And so go ahead and belt squat, right? It's like, or when you bring in a, a free agent for the first time and he's like, coach, I'm not really, I don't like squatting with a bar on my back. All right. Uh, and I don't like doing, you know, bi you know, bilateral squats. I don't like doing squats and stuff, which, all right, well, do you like doing split squats? Yeah, I'll do those all day. 
And then that same guy's like, but I like cleans. Perfect. I mean, no big deal. Like, you know, when I worked with Christian McCaffrey, man, we built out a plan that was based off the template. And then as he, you know, then we, then it would vary quick. You know, and those are the things that you have to be. That's where you, you got to have a plan. I don't care what anyone says. You got to have a plan that you believe in deep. In, it's like deep in your blood, but you got to know the alternatives and you can't be rigid. Like you can be rigid with a freshman in high school. You can be rigid with a freshman in sophomore in college, but as these guys grow or these, and these women grow with your coaching women, they're sharp and they understand development and you've got to make it to a point where what a lot of people would see is irrelevant that you've brought relevancy to being in the weight room because you're doing things that these athletes can absolutely see are one uh, building strength, which builds resiliency, which also improves power. And they can see things in measurable KPIs that especially in non weight room stuff, like you were talking about your jump scores and, and things like that. But also you're building their confidence and most and most importantly, you're protecting them. So you're building plans that that are you're you're evaluating your needs analysis. You're looking at common injury areas across the board. Uh, again, uh, can you affect injury prevention and decrease injuries with a sound strength and conditioning program? I believe that. Are you going to say that? And you're going to tell me no one's ever got hurt in your strength program, or you've never pulled a hamstring running sprints? I'm going to tell you you're not training hard enough. Because for you to tell me you're going to coach 120 football players and 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 ask them to and demand of them, one of those kids is going to pull a hamstring. <laughs> and I don't mean that to be a uh, you know somebody coming at somebody, but if you're training somebody and you're training your team, even if you're individualizing stuff, if you're pushing and you're trying to improve to adapt and build build on things, it's hard for me to believe that you can go through four-year career with with never pulling a hamstring with your team. Yeah, and I think it's a razor's edge. I think, wasn't it Moffitt who talked about an overtrained team and an undertrained team look the same on the field? And when you start looking at that fine-tuning, knowing your juniors, knowing your seniors, they run faster, how are you going to dose that? And whether you're using a piece of equipment or whether you're using the eye test, you can kind of look around, but being able to push people hard is a, is a balancing act. And as you were talking about, you know, especially at the highest level, um, they've been selected because they're good at something. Even if they're not good in the weight room, they're good at something. They're getting paid millions of dollars. They're good so, at, yeah, they're good at the sport. They're good at something. And then the other yeah. thing that I asked, I asked one person, I go, tell me, what do you like doing in the weight room? And the response was, well, isn't that your job? Well, I mean, I can tell you about the weight room, but you've been doing this now and you're getting paid professionally. What do you like? What makes you feel good? What are your, and just taking the time to try to fine tune, like you said, did they have a bad experience with the back squat? You know, do they, uh, do they not know how do they have, are they a running back with small little forearms and they can't catch a clean, but yet they've been told to do it and their wrists hurt, like really being open to kind of listen. And we, we did, um, individual meetings at the end of every season. Just sit down, everybody, 15, 30 minutes, and just do just like a deep dive on thoughts and whatever. Okay, I've heard you. Now, given what you've talked to me about, here's the plan we're going to move forward. And we can adjust this to go, but I heard you. I think I hear you is probably one of the most overlooked, most important phrases in coaching is taking that time, acknowledging it, and letting the athletes know how much you care. 
Well, I also think when you say, I hear you, when it really resonates with them is when they see the next program come up and they see it. Because that's what we had success with in the pros was, hey, man, I work with so-and-so in the offseason. I like these exercises. Fine, let's put them in. Huh? And then there's some guys, like you said, there's some athletes that they want the freedom to do stuff. So you say, all right, you're on your own today. And they look around and they go, well, what should I do? Because they just want to know they can do what they want, but they still want you to direct them, which, and that's good too, right? So that means they believe in you. And and in the end, they don't want to be like, well, that, that man, I don't want to have to think about it. Just tell me what you want me to do, right? Yeah, so that, that's, that's when that, you know that, you got it. I don't yeah, know. That's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's relationships, right? But yeah, I think, and, and, and you said it, which is really true, especially with the male athletes. Once you kind of got your thing going on, one of the simplest ways to give them a little back is like you said, on the, on, uh, you know, we used to call it gun show and, you know, nowadays with the way things go, I call it arm farm with, uh, Scott Caulfield. So I'd rather call it arm farm because it takes some of the things out of it. Like I was never early on in my career when they would tell you, Oh, we're going to battle and we're going to war. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if that's really where we're going. We're playing They call it a game for a reason, <laughs> right? So I like Arm Farm better nowadays. It's kind of more politically correct. So, but again, yeah, hey, man, you know what? You guys designed the Arm Farm today. And that's what in the pros on Friday, uh, we had we had this, uh, we had Arm Farm and guys would go in there and they, you know, they'd ask sometime, but they knew what they wanted, you know. Couldn't come in with sleeves on. That was like the number one rule. You came in with sleeves on, there was going to be a fist fight. And then when Roman Harper came in from the Saints, he had a tradition where he called it 315 Friday. So he would bench 315 for as many reps as he could. Well, everybody jumped in on that. And I'm like, holy man, I don't need these guys like Max Effort benching 315 oh, for Max reps on a Friday. Oh, no. I'm, I'm losing my job here. But, hell, we went to the Super Bowl with 15 and 1. So, that that was worth three fifteen Friday, but you know that's the things like those little things on their time. Like I I can I'll tell you this, we had programs available, but because I am a three day a week primarily strength trained templated coach, and in the NFL you have a four day workout window, so we train Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday, and we gave them Friday Saturday Sunday off. Friday was a makeup day if you wanted to make up so you can make your money or you if you had a bonus. But Tuesday was our big, like I would call it our big conditioning day. But in the weight room, that was player's choice. Like we had like, hey, here's an ankle program. Here's an ab program. Here's a this program. But really, for the most part, the guys had to come in there and do something. It, it could have been soft tissue only, like SMR. But that was their day. Like, and what I did that for was because so many guys in the NFL train off site longer than they train on site. There's certain things they just like, and that was their day to get it done. So I, I thought like we won without, without really anything that hurt our program. Cause it was like, Hey man, we train tier systems Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the NFL. It was Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, which proved to me that you can train, my my beliefs in those settings because you know a lot of times in high school you in the summer you have to give them friday off too so it's so i i learned a lot but 
we always wanted him in the weight room every day because we were on the field every day. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to make this real easy. Tuesday is player's choice. And everybody's like, what does that mean? It means it's your choice. And I'll tell you what, we were strong. We were, we were resilient. We worked hard and the guys had a free day. And how much of that was free versus that you, it sounds like less free, but more that you drove ownership. And I'm assuming they couldn't just walk in and do something bananas. Like there had to be some, you know, some guardrails there of just like you yeah, said. I mean, some, but like, but there was a couple of guys that had specific things they were going to do. And I didn't care because they were there to play football. And it was our job to make the weight room a safe haven. Weight room is not prison like it is in college sometimes. The weight room is like their only chance to really express themselves outside of being in meetings or being in the training room, getting treatment, all that stuff there. You know, you don't want to be on treatment lists. You don't want to be in the training room all the time. They're going to cut you. So the weight room becomes your, like I said, uh, in a, in a general sense, you know, college strength coaches sometimes are, are the guys acting as the bad cop. In the NFL, to me, I thought I had to be the good cop. Like the weight room had to be a place where it was inviting, it was it was it was exciting. There was a positive vibe in it. It wasn't like, oh, here we go, effing again. Gotta listen to this dude. We're gonna do, you know, everybody cleans, everybody squats. It was, man, we had more stuff going on in that weight room, and it worked. And I think that we were well respected, and we respected a lot. We respected the. The pro athlete, man, I didn't play pro. So my respect level for a pro football player as a football player was at high esteem anyway. Then when I actually got to the NFL as a coach, it raised to a whole nother level. I couldn't, you know, what the, what they're asked to do and how they're asked to do it and the fact that they can repeatedly do it at that level, my, my respect, two things happened to me. My respect level for NFL football players went skyrocketing and my own belief on how good a football player I was got lower and lower. <laughs> well, you're dealing with the freaks. You're dealing with people yeah. so far out of the standard deviation that, again, it's almost like going from regular physics to, say, quantum physics. It's just there's just certain things that are different at that level and how they repair, how their bodies can contract, the forces they can produce, the power they can produce. But I just – how do you walk that fine line, though, that if you saw someone going in – and, again, I'm, I'm talking pro – under their own volition, like, I'm going to do this, but you just knew in your heart of hearts, whether it's an old school coach or whether it's a, a data specific point, how would you go about approaching that situation and assuming you have to have a relationship? But if you were just like, man, that just really, you know, that just might not be a good idea. Would you let them do it? Or how do you even start those conversations? And then I'm going to ask you the same question at the college level when there's yeah. things you're supposed to do and the head coach says, we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. At, at the pro level, again, the one thing is I work for a great coach. So I had, you know, I had, I don't want to say I had free round, but I could make, I could make decisions and not, and not feel like I was going to be chastised for, but I, I told a lot of our guys, Hey man, I get it. I see where you're coming from, but the truth is I am the voice of reality <laughs> and here, and here's the reality of it. it. Like, like if a guy wanted to do a clean on a Tuesday, I'm like, man, we're doing clean. We're doing cleans on Thursday. Now, if you really think you need to get it done today, then you can't go more than 80 kilograms, you know, like, cause you can, you know, we, we know you can do Olympic lifts every day. And he just felt like that was what he needed. But I, I always use that term. Someone has to be the voice of reality, especially when 
most of the people chirping in a lot of these guys' heads have their own self-motivating factors on why they want to be involved with these guys. I was involved with those guys because I wanted them to play as long as they could in the NFL. I felt like if I could help them play as long as they could in the NFL and not have to go to plan B, then I'm doing my job. So for me, it was like, like, for example, I had one athlete was, he was a 365er, uh, Greg Olson. I'll say his name because he, he deserves credit. This dude was, he was it, man. There's a reason why he played at such a high level for so long. The guy knew his talent level, which was exceptionally high, but he also knew he had to work extremely hard at the game. Because he was the son of a coach, his mental intellect and his emotional IQ was sky was well, that's why he's doing uh, TV now. And he's a great analyst right off the bat. He knows the game. Uh, worked extremely hard. Loved the weight room. But again, most of the guys I coached from the University of Miami who played in that era of the U, those guys, those guys know what hard work is. Like them dudes worked. You know, they were running, those were one of the first groups who was running the 3110s and all that crazy stuff. So they weren't afraid to work. But what what happened as the as as Greg got older, and I don't mean that in a detriment, he was always reevaluating his plan. Like every year he'd write on the board, this is what we need to work on next year. But what happens with those guys are they don't realize, and I call it the I, I use the the gas a gas tank example. Uh you got a 20-gallon gas tank. That's your max capacity. So now we're on the board and you're loading up information that's going to put you at 24 gallons. Well, we all know if if a gas tank or anything overflows, generally means there's going to be an issue. So I would say, okay, this is all great. I understand this is the stuff you feel like you need to add this year. What are we taking out? What do you mean? It means we can't, you're now, you're over the, you're over the year threshold. It's, this has nothing to do with you being old. It has doing that. There's only so much you can get done. So out of, if you feel these four components or these four specific things are necessary for you to continue to play at a high level, what are certain things we can pull away from? Or do we reduce those volumes and just manipulate volumes so that it gets back to 20 gallons? Right. That prioritization, I think, often gets overlooked, especially even at the high school and college. Like, we're going to do everything. And you just get a big soup of crap. And especially <laughs> at that higher level, you got a finite time. You know, you can't say you're going to do every single thing under the sun. But what are the main things at this point in your career with how you play the game? We had a uh, on one of our other podcasts, someone talk about look at the evolution of Kobe's game from slashing, cutting, dunking. And then as he got older, he changed his game, not in a bad way, but just understanding the realities. And I like your your your, your point there about being that voice of reason, be that voice of reality that they can come to and you can have a non-judgmental. Yeah, I'm not. Objective I'm, conversation. This is, hey, man, I'm just I'm on your side. Don't forget, like I I. I, I don't win if you don't win. Right. Like, and again, it goes back to, like I said, I, I know what my role is. And my role is for you to accomplish your goals and me to help you, not for you to help me accomplish my goals. Because my goals are directly tied to you. If Christian McCaffrey rushes for 1,000 and catches 1,000 receiving yards, I win. Right. I, I win. Inadvertently, I'm a winner. 
That's and, why I hate when people get hung up on this exercise, this style. Yeah. You're, you're, and, if I to, and if I told you how he trained the last four weeks of that season to get to a thousand thousand, you would die laughing. But that's just the way it is. We did what we had to do for him to perform on Sundays. And sometimes that has nothing to do with how much weight or how much minutes he spent in a time lifting weight. It's what is your job? My job is to get that kid to Sunday as healthy as he can weeks 14, 15, and 16. So at the end, it's, okay, how do you feel? How much work are you doing in practice? What do we need for this guy to be ready on Sunday? Sometimes that dose is quite surprisingly super low. And, you know, like you said, in college, college is more you being the lead educator and really being the dictator, so to speak, on how this is going to look for those people that unless they're fourth or fifth year guy or fourth or fifth year athlete who has spent a lot of time understanding what their goals and aspirations are in that sport, you know, in the high school deal, it's a hundred percent, you know, you're teach, you're the teacher. You're just, your number one goal is, can you get them confident? Can you get them moving, you know, movement before mu muscle motion is lotion you don't want to lose those those very sensible capabilities that strength training could put a detriment to if you're not doing a combination of movement and mobility along with trying to develop strength. So the you are your narrative changes from a control standpoint at the more elite level you go. And that's where I said I I believe that a very good NFL or professional strength coach I saw that more as a managerial role of really managing people's stress, managing the information that they gave me, and then creating the plan. College, I saw myself as the uh, the lead architect yep. in developing the plan for them, seeing how they responded, and then making the adjustments for them. And then at the at the high school level and the youth level or the adolescent level from 10 to high school, you're, you're relying on your expertise to develop a plan that you feel is conducive to building these young kids into being an extremely confident and resilient person as they grow in life. Yeah. And I think at every level of that mentorship motivation, and then ultimately at the end of the day, you know, it, it's that partnership. I have an area of expertise. You're really good at your sport together. We can have you do your sport longer and provide for your family. Yeah, and synergistic relationships. Yeah. But I, I'd love to also hear your thoughts that when you started, it was the strength coach and you had to wear a lot of different hats. And so in small business, you have to wear a lot of hats now more so than ever. And I'm still, you know, I'm still trying to look for that kind of new optimum model. You've got nutrition departments, you've got yeah. data scientist departments. And often when you have multiple shareholders and, and we saw this in the military with joint special operations and coordination, there's a real art and science to decentralized command. And then who's relaying the information chain of command. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on everything that you just mentioned revolves around context. And so if I have data, or I have information, or I have a service or a specialty, but I don't have context of the individual, you actually can cause more harm than good. Fixating on, oh, this one number, this one metric, or I'm fixated on this one component, when realizing there's a lot of things that go into that performance on a Sunday, or Friday night, or Saturday, but how do you shepherd that? How do you manage it? And if, you, if there's a young coach listening right now, 
that maybe is at a school where or an institution where there's a lot of different shareholders and it kind of can get a little turf worry. How would you go about setting up those communications? Because at the end of the day, no matter what your discipline is, the goal is we're here to help the kids, right? Make yeah. the best and program. That's, and that's right? the problem. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. This is stuff that I've worked on. Like I've worked on flow charts and what that looks like if I were to be, let's just say, the top of that uh, chart where you're the high performance manager or director of health, well-being and performance, or whatever those titles would be is uh, what, and you're right at one point in time, the strength coach and even the trainer, because the trainers were actually before strength coaches, they, we held all the hats. So we held sports science. We held nutrition. We held return to play. We, we, we held uh, mental well-being. How many times did you have a closed door meeting with an athlete that couldn't go to anywhere else? Didn't want to go to the coach. Didn't want to go to the position coach. Couldn't call home. You're that person. You wind up being that person. Now, what I think has happened over the evolution of athleticism and how it is, people have realized jack of all trades, master of none. And you have expertise, people who are experts, and some people don't, may disagree with this, and I reserve the right to be wrong, but you truthfully can only be an expert in one thing, maybe two. I mean, do I know nutrition? Yes. Am I an expert in nutrition? No. Do I know sports science? Yes. Am I an expert in sports science? No. Do I understand how to accumulate data? Yes. Do I understand how to interpretate data? Yes, but not as good as people who are experts in that. Do I understand the socio-psychological aspects of sports and athletes? Yes. Can somebody come to me and display uh, emotional stuff and I would be able to give them some general guidance? Yes. But am I a sports psychiatrist or, or a occupational therapist? No. And in this day and age, that's super critical, more so now than ever. You know, uh, do I understand return to play? Yes. Can I help you get back on the field better? Yes. But not maybe as good as a really good PT. So what's happened is we've learned that if, if and again, you don't want to say, but the value is to the athlete, right? The athlete is why we all have jobs. And what we've learned is over time is, well, if we can, if we can take this guy and let him be an expert as a strength coach, and find these experts and all the things we're asking him to do, isn't that going to make the athlete better? But like you said, what happens now is now you got, instead of, it's yeah, now you, instead of you having one ego to manage, now you've got five. And that's where I think you need somebody overseeing that. So, because those, those disciplines or what I would call a higher a horizontal hierarchy. They're all even. Now, the head the head football coach may see the strength coach differently than the other people, but in the picture of the overall health and welfare of the athlete, all those people are are a hierarchy of horizontal leadership. One shouldn't outweigh the other when those people are in a room trying to figure out what's the best plan for athlete A or the team. That's where the individual above there is such a high importance hire. And what you've seen too, because in your, in your role now and, and how much 
science has been dictated overseas and brought to the states, I, I think organizations have hired the incorrect person to oversee that because they didn't have experience in this level. They're coming right over from, let's just say, a science lab or from one specific discipline, but they've never been in the trenches. And now they're trying to be a leader and they've never led. And then they want to know why these plans are failing. Just like when sports science and let's just say GPS hit the NFL. Well, no one knew what to do. So what did they do? They went overseas and hired guys who did rugby and soccer. Well, guess what? Nothing against rugby and soccer. It's not American football. And why did it fail? Because they were trying to put in the same information and give that to coaches based off rugby and soccer, not based off of learning the game of football. And that's where I, I, we at the Panthers, I, we, when we, when we dictated who we were going to have do ours, they were going to learn from scratch. So when people said, Hey house, who'd you bring in for your GPS? I said, I got an American football player doing American football GPS. And he did a great job of learning what it was and he enhanced it and, and took it to another level because he understood the game. And that and that's the thing is like you said, there's certain times where people are misinterpreting the data because the science guy's not really specific doesn't understand the sport. Like for example, that guy just evaluates the GPS, comes to you and says, Hey Thomas, this guy's step balance off. And you look at it and you're like, Hey, why don't you come to practice tomorrow? See this guy, he plays left tackle. Watch what he does all day. That's why his step balance is off. So don't come here fighting with me that something's wrong with this guy. The guy's doing the same movement. It's just like, you know, uh, a golfer. Watch a golfer. Why is Tiger Woods beat up as much as he is? One is because he's done the same movement pattern since he's four years old and, and didn't do enough to compensate for that strong, explosive, powered, torqued movement. So what happened? He deteriorated his knee and his back. And that has nothing to do with the car accidents and all the other stuff. That stuff was bound to happen. Most golfers, it happens to. He was just being able to be smarter that he was the one who brought physical fitness to golf, so it didn't show up till later. While, while he, and he was able to recover a lot of times. So I think what you have to do is, when it comes to that is, you can't just hide in your bubble. All these people got to, all these people have to do this, especially those that are allegedly now sports science who don't have a background in athletics. That If that person wants to make a true impact with guys like myself, the practitioners who know the sport that they're in because they've either played it or been around it enough, hey, you want to be great at your job? You need to be a practice. And you need to learn the sport. You need to learn the positions. You need to learn why why. Left side of the line is going to look different than the right side, and the center is going to look balanced. You know, you you need to understand if an edge rusher plays only on the left, uh, plays over the left tackle, that's going to look different than the three techniques, the one technique or zero technique, or the opposite ed edge. And and until they understand that, like you were saying earlier, I think before we even got on, these people are going to make interpretations and go to the coach. The coach is going to get nervous, come to you, and like, ho oh, ho, coach. The, the, that guy and that's where i think where that leader guy the the director or the high performance manager 
that's where that meeting has to occur where there's still there, there has to be a point person. Now, can the coach speak to the nutritionist individually? Yes. But in the big thick of the deal, one person's the point person. And that person meets with the horizontal leadership. And then we all put it out there. And then we formulate a generalized concept to give to the coach daily or weekly. And then if that coach needs a specific meeting with one of those people, that that's that's a different story for a different day. But the big thing that this level of person has to do is manage these people to know that, hey, we're all in it together. And more importantly, if you say your goal is to benefit the athlete, then it shouldn't be about you. It shouldn't be, I'm, I know this is it. Do you? Because the trainer's saying something else and the sports psychologist saying something else. Right. And that's you know, exactly so, get back to that humility and being. Yeah, so at the end, you got to know, like, hey, you know, uh, Ron, uh, Ron Rivera, know your role, manage your expectations. And if you can't manage them, it's time to leave. Yep. And I think that's too, if you can envision just as, you know, coach is talking about this kind of horizontal hierarchy, that's your department, but how you interface with the football team should be a different interface than the tennis team. And it's unique to the culture, to the athletes, to the coaches. But then also one of the things that we would do is I want you, you're the nutritionist. I want you to come to the weight room. It don't have to be all the time, but oh, you no, our, our nutritionist with the Panthers was yeah. in the weight room all the time. But even at the high school or at the college level, if there's yeah. multiple shareholders, because you know what? And then from the strength coaches, guess what? You go make a shake. So, wow, I have to make 210 shakes in eight minutes. That's hard, you know, or you got to well, go. Oh, it's the same thing. Like, you know, I guarantee you this, and I don't know, I, and I hope I don't put you on the spot, but I can guarantee you why you were successful with the lacrosse team at Yale was because you went to practice. Yep. Because there's a lot of strength coaches don't go to practice. And then they want to know why those kids walk in the weight room and don't give a damn. Yeah, and you I don't, think, you didn't and, meet and, them, you didn't meet them on there. Go meet them, go meet them in their world. And, the yeah, coach, and, I, and then you want to see how quick the coach says, do what House says. He comes to practice all the time. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's where that relationship and it's tough because again, we would be working football, which is a full time gig, lacrosse full time. Yeah, I work seventeen and, sports. And 30 other teams. And so when you have 900 athletes and you have a handful of coaches, how you manage that, but showing that you care, but I think also relatability. Again, any kind of data set or any kind of functionality, like you said, in your vacuum, and especially as we get more science involved and more data, well, have them re-jump again. We got five, we gotta go. Like we gotta we gotta go lift. Like, yeah. you know, guess what? You know what? The position well, they, they'll jump tomorrow. Yeah, they'll jump tomorrow. That's their yeah. readiness. And and we <laughs> don't necessarily, as in a peer reviewed double blind study, get to control the variables because that's yeah. not the practitioner's world. And so really having a conversation about okay, this program right here, year one. This is what we're going to do. Year two, let's build on it. Because I see a lot of times right now, it's just a fire hose of good <laughs> hope, good intention. And we'll tell people all the time, just do a vertical jump. You don't have to do a mid-thigh pull. You don't have to just start small. And then the next test is, I'm going to ask an athlete, do they understand? Because if it doesn't matter to them or there's not a language to facilitate conversation, then don't go. And then that's when we start seeing that people build their own thing. But there's this, I feel like there's a pressure. Oh, well, they're, 
they're, they're doing it. Oh, we got to do it twice as much. They got a ramp. We need a steeper ramp. Oh, they're, oh yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it's an arms race, but that's just not how it works. And so if you're listening, own what you own. But then, as Coach pointed out, be respectful of the other disciplines. But I want to see a data scientist come in and put a bar on their back. You know, I want to see a nutrition. And, and that's where and that's where I'll respect Matt Ray, because when Matt Ray first started, when we first started building our relationship at Arizona State, he came in and we, he went through a workout and it was like he said, man, I think I've been throwing up for two weeks. But, you know, Matt, again, I appreciate Matt doing that. And and Matt and I, I mean, you know, Matt, shoot, I think we would have been the first college weight room. I mean, he he played a little football at, you know, UNLV for Mark Philippi. But I think as a scientist and a sport practitioner, we were the first people that invited him into a weight room. And, you know, he took advantage of that. And now he's in a great position and he's done some really good things to move our profession and our whole, how we look at training athletes to a whole nother level. Well, as you alluded to that, we're definitely, I think back to the big functional push of the 2000s and that got out of hand and it swung back. And now the pendulum has swung fully towards the data side. And and I just, I'm curious, because I know it will continue to morph and evolve, but in an idealistic world, kind of knowing what you know, where do you kind of see not just um, the data and the analytics, but just kind of where do you see the profession going kind of in a short term, call it five year and then 10 year track? Um, and I'm speaking from a, this is how it should run from a successful standpoint. Where do you see that growth headed? Well, I think like anything else, right? It gets overabundance and then people find out how to bring it back to center. Uh, right now, I think it's a little too high valued because we don't know enough on how to use it. Um, I would say that individuals like myself have to be very, very astute and letting under letting people know that we ex- like people. I, I sometimes get the misnomer that people think I'm anti-tech. No, I'm anti-overtech because I was one of the first guys ever to have a Tendo. So don't tell me I, I don't believe in technology and, and utilizing things that are available to me. You know, we use Dartfish. I was one of the, you can ask Victor. Uh, I was one of the first schools that had a Dartfish app. So it's not, it's how do we use that? We were still learning how to use it. Like, I always go back to talking with Matt Ray is, and I believe, I can't remember whoever first started doing it, but like when Tendo's first came in, it was introduced for the dynamic effort method that we can, we can track velocity. But I look back now on how I trained athletes and using Prilipin's chart, like we never even thought to put it on the heavy days and see what that data looked like. And I was doing you know, I'm a until this day, I'm a huge Prilipin guy with my athletes. I always use percentages, but looking at but having that velocity score to see how well guys' capacity to maintain strength and speed would have been something like I told us to Matt a couple of years ago. My my and this is when I really flipped Matt and he told me I was 10 years ahead of the research, and I was like, that's why I don't read the research. But I was doing uh, return a uh, post summer, what I call yeah, a post summer con- uh, strength test for our football players where we did a fifteen rep cluster. So I made it like it's a fifteen play drive. We started at anywhere between eighty five and eighty eight percent of their pure one rep max for March. So it was in a traditional like powerlifting setting, 
where they accomplished a one RM. And the goal was, can they do it for 15 reps with 35 second rest? Similar to a game. Because my thought was, and it's a weird misnomer, but it was my whole thing was from a conditioning and a strength standpoint was last fast, meaning be in great shape that you can play fast. It lasts fast, like fourth quarter fast, and then play stronger, longer. That if you're in quality shape, you can maintain a high level of your maximal strengths. And and knowing that relative, you know, let's just say your very first play of the game, you're at 100, then it's how high can you maintain your level of strength and speed close to 100%. So everything changes, right? So what we saw was, and I think some of it was neural, some of it was flow, some of it was technique efficiency that a lot of guys, and this was not atypical, that anywhere between reps five and eight, these guys were moving this type of load with such efficiency and speed that we'd start bumping them up. And we'd have guys at reps 13, 14, 15, setting new PRs from a one rep max in March in the in this 15 rep cluster. And if I would have loved to have seen velocity-based numbers on that, that would have been something, you talk about anecdotal research that might've turned into some crazy type of paper. But, you know, so I think that to, to go back to what I'm saying is the biggest thing to me with technology is we were all sports scientists and we all collected data. That was never the case. It's just like, you know, how many times did you see football coaches back in the day? They'd have their third and 10 field to find tendencies. Now we call that analytics. Coaches been breaking down film for ages. Hey, on third and 10, they're going to run this blitz 80% of the time. Well, now that's called analytics, and it takes a lot faster to figure it out. So the question to me will be, what metrics do we continue to build on that show what we want it to accomplish? Like for me, it'll be really interesting to see one of the eye-opening things to me, and I know I'm dancing around, but one of the eye-opening things to me when we first utilized GPS that really resonated with me as a coach who ran the dog piss out of people when they were in college was total yardage versus what we would consider high-speed running. And what we found out on things like back in, you know, the old, what, what's the old model, right? Run every play full, run everything full speed. Well, guess what? That GPS says very rarely are they running full speed, right? And then it's, then you find out that I felt very confident that well, my yardages were right. If I added up all my yardages of my conditioning, I was in the right ranges based off what GPS was telling me from practice. But what I learned was 10 to 12% of that was what we considered high-speed running. We used StatSports. So in StatSports' high-speed running model, it was, I think that I probably mess it up, but it was 80% of anything over 80% of your max miles per hour and and the amount of A cells and D cells that you had. So now what you find out is, okay, you had a 3,500-yard practice, but only 380 yards was high-speed running. Now when I look at it from establishing a program for, like, say, summer conditioning, 
okay, I have to get this amount of yardage accomplished, but now where am I going to take this 380 yards and how am I going to decipher that in the high-speed running? Okay, I'm going to use that into position-specific work and change of direction. So all my short ancillary change of direction, so I get my A cells and D cells and I get my high-speed running is going to be focused on change of direction, reaction, agility, and position-specific. Then, and we were always ahead of the game anyway, then when I need to accomplish the longer yardage stuff to build that anaerobic base and that or and or aerobic base that helps them recover, I don't have to worry about running 13-second one-tenths. I don't need that to be full speed. I can lower that goal time for each position group which then expands the rest time. And now I can get the quality that I need. I think one of the things that you we brought up there that I know we started playing with that uh, Dr. Kramer had mentioned was people forget that conditioning is at speed or it's at force. So lineman conditioning, just going for a jog is not going to replace, say, when we do those clusters of the circuited four by 10 at 80%. And then the other part is, it's an absolute game. I'm absolutely either going to knock you down or you're going to move me. It's man-on-man violence. So if you can't perform that task at 420 pounds for your back squat, it's irrelevant how many times you can do it over and over again because you're not even in the force band yeah. or the velocity bands to then try to use your technique. And so I agree with you that that's definitely been an area that technology has really kind of given us a little bit more clarity. Some things we knew and it confirmed it, but then there were some other things that I've seen some really good practitioners start to optimize some of these kind of things that you know weren't as clear but everybody sees well that's a trainable quality i can modify my stuff that's just being a good coach and putting the ego aside and and that's again that's where what i what i liked about it and i've actually done a better job of studying it more now that i've been out of coaching so i feel like i can hold my own in conversations with the expert and not feel like I would be over talked to. And and again, I'll tell you right now, I, I I'm go I'm stuck. I've started it, then I put I put it shelf, but I will I will start again. I'm gonna sit for the National Strength and Conditioning Coaches certified sports science exam because I feel like whether I get into coaching or not, it's my way of showing that I feel like I need to have that that knowledge base where wherever my future holds whether it's in the same role I am in now and mentoring and champion for strength and conditioning and what that future holds tells me that I believe it's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. I think what will happen is as people get more understanding for the sports they're working with, it will be very much refined. There'll be very, very, very specific metrics for every sport out there and what that looks like. Only the future knows that. I mean, again, in your in your in your company with the force plates and, and like again, imagine doing that cluster with a VBT device on a force plate. Boy, wouldn't that be interesting to see how the body mechanics change? Sounds like we need to do that. Sounds yeah, like we, we need to do that. I, I just got to get up. <laughs> yeah, we got to get a job and coach some kids, man. We'll get it. We'll, I mean, we'll get it. We'll get it. We yeah. Can so I mean, so I, I think there's um, you know. There's a and again, I am very much impressed with what some of these kids are doing with with the technology. Like some of them have really figured out. Like, like I'm really I, I'm really, really 
infatuated with if I got back into a team setting with training training and recording max velocity and max acceleration and how that looks as improvement points. And again, I don't think there'll ever be a paradigm shift with football where you will um, you will see that replace an actual handheld time or a time because as we know with watching how max velocity now, you you could have a guy, you could have three guys hit the same miles per hour but run different times because that one one has a longer A cell and he and he hits it late. One has an extremely fast A cell, hits hits the miles per hour early, but can't decelerate, can't maintain. Then there's that one guy who's got the perfect percentage of run. He's probably gonna run the fastest. So but it's cool to see that, right? It's interesting to see how guys are using different fly-ins, uh, how they're doing that stuff. I just, I just think that that's the stuff that I think is super cool. Like, okay, this is where I would like to have that when I was coming up. But I also feel like my, my coach's eye, my studying of the games, where I see what, what we did do without it, like, hey, we were, we were close. Like, our our thoughts and our and our discussions made sense because we were close, but there was just certain things like like you said, run every rep full speed. Well, that's you know every play's got to be full speed. No, it doesn't, man. The day you know. Well, we even see now too. Just so you gave a maximum output speed velocity, but the strategy. So when we talk about how did you jump? How did you achieve that? How did you, de- you mentioned the D-cell. How many times you seen the twitchy three-sport athlete jump out of the gym, but they don't have the training density and they just get pummeled in preseason or they get pummeled. Oh, yeah. And so understanding, wow, if I have this person that's super gifted, to increase longevity is what I need to focus on to increase productivity. And conversely, that person who's tried and true and they have a decent training age, that's a completely different approach. But now, again, taking that coach's eye, putting some numbers, I think... I think it facilitates a new language between the coaching performance staff and, and the athlete themselves. And I hope that if used right, should make context clearer, but then also provide a lot of meaningful conversations about how we can really push athlete development to kind of that next generation. So it's and really I also great. will tell you this, this is what, what also helped us with the data from the GPS. It will bring validity to your, your conditioning programs. Because now when you tell the athlete why you're doing something and say, hey, these yardages are based off of what we pulled off of your data. And again, I, I, I'm a 300-yard shuttle guy. I, I, I'm not afraid to say it. And I understand people like, oh, but, here's what, but, but again, a lot of times it's like, damn, man, why are we doing this? But now I could say, hey, we're running these tempos at these yardages, and it's based off of what we got from an average of your position group. Now you see that player like, okay, I'll do that and not bitch about it. Where, hey, we got five 300 today. What the F are we doing that for? Right? But now I tell you, hey, we're going to run five sets of 50 down and backs with a walk because this is what the yardage is and the, the plays out based off of your position group's data. I'll do that. Yeah, and I think what people don't know is that, as you mentioned, people want to poo-poo it on it. I remember we were lucky enough to see some of Jerry Martin's work where they actually started looking at the 300-yard shuttle 
but on 60-yard intervals. And I remember asking, why why did you guys do that um, to Doc? And his thing was that you need to be able to achieve those higher velocities and be able to break and get out of it. Yeah. So it's a high-velocity sport, that 300 shows less about 300 yards. Those are a big, big yeah. bounce of effort. How can you, yeah, how can you sell – how can you decelerate because you got to touch the line and go back? You don't want to cross the line. Yeah. And we did, you know, we did them all different ways. We did 50 and back, 25 and back, which is that's the beat down, 13 touches will wear you out. And then we did a 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. But we always, then as I got more later on, we just did the 50s and back because we wanted them to be able to open up some. We wanted to be able to break with a little bit more speed and, and build some resiliency. And again, so we 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 had very different goal times than many, and we had very longer rest times than a lot of guys using that. And that's why I think we were able to win with that from a success standpoint, because when I talked to guys who didn't believe in that longer stuff, but were kind of recommended by their football coaches to do it, we had a lot of coaches call us to get our goal times and rest times because they knew we were one of those programs but they also knew that from what they had heard we weren't doing the standard goal time rest times as everybody else yeah i mean we the hydrogen ions are going to get you fatigue is a real deal and i want to see that <laughs> velocity and i want to see fatigued at high force and if i can get those two parameters that gives me a lot more confidence heading into our practical application as we get into camp and Again, people are going to have strengths and weaknesses, but it's how you can, how resilient are you in that absolute moment when you need to, you know, perform a task? And there's just, there's just no getting over that. And, but. and like anything else, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a mean and a, and a mode for all that stuff. I'm not running 300 yard shuttles three weeks before a football camp, but as a base, and what we saw was by, by lengthening the goal times and lengthening the rest times. When we did do our time trial, what we called it at the end of that phase, and we went to the traditional goal time, rest time of what that test was based on what has been in textbooks and prescribed even through the Boyd Epley and back in the day with Nebraska, we our guys smoked the test. That was the, I mean, we were running fives and you'll, coach, we're only running two today. Yeah, but I, I need, now I need you to go. But we had guys who like their goal times were 75 seconds and they were and they run them in 62. And our goal was you had to, to pass, you had a certain number you had to bake, but you also had to run the second one within five seconds of the first one. Because that was to see how well you recovered. Not and you weren't getting punished for anything, but it was just for us to evaluate where certain guys are. So from yeah. us, it was, it was, you know, and again, I mean, that's, like I said, man, that, that'll be debated and, and the new era coach will just chop the old era coach up with the longer distance stuff. But some of those guys understand like, Hey man, building a base is building a base. If you think running a hundred tens, build your base, more power to you. I'm not going to fight you on it. Uh, you know, we'll just, we'll just agree to disagree, which is the great thing about training athletes. There is no wrong way to do it. Well, but that's why we got competition, right? And being open-minded because you talked about these changing. And I, people, I've been doing it this way forever. Well, if it works, great. But also science and just the game, anything has evolved. So being open to evolution, if it's logical and it makes sense and, you know, it's safe, you, you try. And that's how you advance the field. So I think that's important. Yeah, that's crazy, man. But again, I, I'll always go down to like, I know what got me here. How can I use the new 
the new uh, information and the new technology that's available to keep me here. Right. And if it may, and if it means that I've got to adjust certain things that I held true, then you got to do it because at the end of the day, it ain't about me. It's about the guy or that it's about the woman. It's about the sport. It's about doing right by them so they can win some championships. Yeah. Well, coach, I couldn't agree more. And again, you know, your, your persona, you come in, uh, you know, big house, this, that, but it's pretty interesting to see inside that house, you have someone who's very humble, very committed to their craft. And I can't, you know, say enough. Thanks for coming on this podcast and being able to talk about the things you've learned and so many insightful nuggets here and, um, you know, stuff to really kind of think about. We often, when we, we have these podcasts, people want to reach out to our guests. What's the best way for them to get a hold of you or to contact you if they have additional questions, um, or interested in your program? Yeah, you know it's funny now like right, right when social media started like the, the the big thing was don't dm me right that's like unprofessional but that's where we all live right so uh i i'm at the i'm a more of an instagram guy than i am on twitter because i find it funny how coaches on twitter like to use that and it just but i'm at at big house power on both and then if you need to the best way to reach me on an email, I've got seven. Everybody laughs when I tell them that. Would be Coach Ken at Big House Power, or you can go to the website BigHousePower.com, and there's an info that I check every day. Also, so uh, those three are the best ways. But I would say Instagram first because that's probably where I do most of my content. And uh, yeah, I'm doing. Uh, I'm going to start doing some more stuff, breaking down some stuff on YouTube. And uh, all that other stuff, I've got a lot of I've got a lot of information that I am trying to figure out what to do with. And I will. YouTube is a it's an interesting tool. Yeah. Well, any way we can help. And again, sharing this kind of knowledge and, and again, kind of that gratitude towards the field um, is so important. So, again, thank you so much for coming on and uh, we'll be in touch. And guys, if you can go check it out, we'll have all the links in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. Talk to you soon. Appreciate it.